As we begin this morning, I would encourage you to open up to uh, your Bibles uh, to our passage, which is uh, Genesis chapter 3. In part, we, we didn't read uh, the whole passage that we're going to go through, and so it'd be helpful, I think, if you have that before you. Let me pray uh, as we begin. Heavenly Father, you have given us so much to be thankful for, so much to be grateful for. Father, I think about the anticipation of Christmas and the joy that that brings. And I pray, Father, that even as we look at this text this morning, that you would remind us how much more we have to be grateful for, how much glorious the coming of our Savior is. And so I pray that you would use our time in the Word together to bring glory to your Son, Jesus, and to bring joy to us. I ask in his name, amen. Well, Billy had just turned five years old, and if your name is Billy, I promise this story is not about you. Billy had just turned five years old, and of all the presents that he'd received for his birthday, the one that he found the most interesting was a small pocket-sized ruler. Doesn't sound like a very exciting gift, but he'd wanted one for a very long time. He watched his older brother use one to do his schoolwork. His older brother had even shown him how to measure things with the ruler. But even though Billy had asked nicely more than once, his brother refused to let him play with it. But now he had his own. Now Billy had his own ruler, and so he spent the better part of the afternoon measuring things around the house. He measured his bookshelf, he measured his matchbox cars, he measured his bed, he measured the length of the grass behind the house. He even measured an earthworm. And that night, as he got ready for bed, he measured his toothbrush. Hopefully he had cleaned it beforehand, uh, but he measured his toothbrush uh, before he put on his toothpaste. A little toothpaste fell into the sink, and so he measured that, and then he got an idea. He wondered how much toothpaste, how long the toothpaste was that was in the tube. He squeezed out a longer line of toothpaste and measured that. Well, he knew he wasn't supposed to waste the toothpaste, uh, so he just washed it down the sink. But how much was in that tube? Well, he started at the edge of the counter by the sink, and he began to squeeze. It went the whole length of the counter, and so he went on. He went on. He couldn't wait to see how much and how long this brand new tube of toothpaste would last. So before long, he had made it outside of the bathroom, and he was making his way down the length of the upstairs hallway. He was just about to go down the stairs when the toothpaste ran out. The tube was empty. He looked around. He had made quite a long line of toothpaste, but suddenly panic filled his heart as he heard the footsteps of his mother coming to tuck him in to bed and kiss him goodnight. What could be done? Right? He, he quickly tried to uh, put the toothpaste back into the tube, but it wouldn't go. It only made more of a mess. And what had seemed like such a good idea now seemed like utter foolishness. All he could think to do was to try and cover it up and go hide under his bed. And this is where we find the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. God had made them into his own image. The Lord had made the man from the dust of the earth. He had formed him himself. Genesis 2.15 tells us the Lord took the man and then put him in the garden 
to work it and to keep it. A garden that the Lord had planted himself. Genesis 2.9 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every tree, good for food. And then Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the, garden, uh, uh, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Lord then told Adam that it was not good for him to be alone. So God formed the woman out of one of the man's ribs. And in 2.25, we read at the end of, of the account of them together before the passage we just read, Genesis 2.25, And the man and his wife, newly married, were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. Lacey read for us the account of the serpent's question to the woman, did, did God really say, right? Did God really say that you were not to eat any tree of the garden? Well, that's not what God said. And so the woman responded, right? We may eat of, of the trees of, in the garden, but God did say that you shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, we don't know why uh, she added that additional part, but... Maybe she was just frustrated that the serpent had made God seem so stingy. But then the serpent in chapter 3, verse 4, said to the woman, you will not surely die. And isn't that the temptation? I think that's the temptation for any of us when we sin. That's the temptation. To believe that God does not have the right or the authority to judge us. Because somehow if we can get rid of that doctrine, the doctrine of divine judgment, then we can justify just about anything that we want to do. Then the serpent went on. You'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman took from the tree, and she ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and at that moment, Everything changed. Everything in history changed in that moment. Genesis 3, 7 says, And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. Remember, they had just described that they, this newly married man and woman, they were naked and they were not ashamed. And now they look down and they see that they're naked. What do they do? They sew fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Somehow the state that God had created them in, that he had called very good, was, was no longer good. And it's not that the, the fruit was mystical. It's not that this was like horrible fruit that they shouldn't have eaten and it made them have a bad reaction. It wasn't about the fruit that caused them to see the world differently. It wasn't the fruit at all. It's that their actions were the act of rebellion against God. Before they sinned, they were not ashamed. But now they had shame. And as we walk through our text this morning, we're going to see three movements of the text in the narrative that I want to, to draw out. And as we walk through these three parts, in the end, I want to draw them together and, and then relate to 
why I think they have so much to do with Advent and the coming of Christmas. Well, the first section that we're, we'll look at is uh, that rebellion uncovered. God's re- uncovering of the rebellion. Rebellion is uncovered. You see this start at uh, verse 8. So just like little Billy uh, was running to hide under his bed, the sound of the Lord walking in the garden led the man and his wife to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. They they tried to cover things up with fig leaves, but those fig leaves sewn together were not enough to cover what was really going on inside of them. As I said, sin is an act of rebellion against God because it's a rejection of God's authority to pronounce what is good what is good and what is evil. And and when we indulge in sin, it's what we're saying to God ultimately is, no, I'll declare what my own good. What you say is evil, I will declare good, and what you say is good, I will declare to be evil. D.A. Carson points out uh, that it's the standing over against God. It's the de-godding of God. It is, in short, idolatry. And that's what we were seeing in the garden, idolatry. And that's why then we, even as sinners ourselves, we, as we become aware of our own sin, we feel shame. And what does that shame lead us to do? It, it leads us to run away from God, to avoid facing the hard reality of our rebellion, to avoid the sting of what we know our rebellion really deserves. And so... Adam and Eve hid. And, and even as we read it, it, it seems ridiculous that they would hide from God. And yet hiding is the same thing that we often do. We read in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Just the, the way that this is worded is meant to, to elicit in us something good, right? That this would have been a time where they should have looked forward to as the man and the woman, in the same way that Billy would normally look forward to his mother coming to tuck him in and kiss him goodnight. But not that day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But what do we see God do? We see God pursuing them. The all-knowing God knows exactly where they are and what they've done. But he still calls to them. Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? I think what's implied in the Lord's questioning is the invitation for Adam to confess his sin. It's actually a theme that we see throughout the scriptures of of God pursuing his people in order to bring them to a place of repentance. But instead of confessing his sin, he does what uh, we often do. He he shifts the blame, right? He says, the man says, well, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So Adam, yes, Adam is throwing his wife under the bus, right? He's blaming her. But he's also blaming God. He's blaming God for giving him a wife that was faulty. (laughs) Come on, God. The wife that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. If you'd given me a better wife, she wouldn't have given me the fruit. 
Either way, though, what's going on is Adam is denying his own responsibility. And so then we shift to the woman. The Lord asks the woman, what is this that you have done? And she fares no better. She turns to the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. It's, it's not my fault, right? This guy tricked me and I was like, oh my gosh. And like all of a sudden I'm eating and I didn't know what I was doing. No. God knew that it, they knew. They knew that they knew. Everybody knew that they knew what, was, what they were doing. It's important for us to understand that God's questions uncovered their rebellion, the rebellion of the man and the woman. It, it just uncovered it. It didn't cause their rebellion. It's not that the, that the rebellion was really just that they lied to God or shifted the blame. The rebellion was, happened beforehand, although it was compounded by their, their words. I think we can sometimes make the mistake of believing or, or thinking or, or wishing that sin is only something that we find is, is exposed or, or caught. Right? And so, uh, you know, maybe I do something, but nobody finds out about it, so maybe it doesn't count. But even if sin is never found out by another person, there are still consequences, which is what we see then in our next section. The Lord reveals then the consequences to the man and the woman and the serpent. So the rebellion is uncovered by the Lord, and then the Lord reveals the consequences, starting with verse 14. And let me just say, at the onset, we're not going to deal with all of the consequences that are in this text, uh, because books have been written about them. And so if you feel like, boy, Steve, you didn't address X, Y, and Z, you're probably right. I didn't, I'm not going to address everything. Because there's consequences throughout the scriptures of all that's connected to these, this sin, this first sin and the fall. But for our purposes, I just want to highlight a few of them. The first thing that we notice is the order in which the people are addressed. Well, people and the serpent, right? It's first the serpent and the woman and the man. And the reason for this is that God had created an order uh, in creation, right? A hierarchy, as it will, that sin had completely turned upside down. Right? Remember, God had created Adam and uh, gave Adam, he placed him in, in the garden, placed him in authority over all of the animals. He was to protect the garden. And then, then he created Eve as a suitable helper to work with him. But the serpent turned it all upside down. Right? The serpent was an animal. It should have been under the authority of Adam. But instead, the serpent stood in the place of God. And so the Lord addresses the serpent first and said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. We have to be clear here. This is not like a, like how did the snake lose its legs? It's not that type of a story. In fact, the serpent is, is mentioned uh, throughout the scriptures, and then we finally see in Revelation where the serpent is very much connected with the person of Satan, the deceiver, the devil. And so this is, you know, yes. Are snakes horrible? Yes. Don't, please don't ever bring a snake around me. 
As we'll see in the next verse, I have reason to be afraid of snakes, right? Verse 15, what do we see? We see that I will, uh, the Lord says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And we think, well, no wonder we hate snakes. It's biblical. <laughs> but that's not what this verse is about either. Because the word offspring uh, can be translated seed, and it's a singular he said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring, single, your offspring and her offspring, one to one. And he says, and you shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What we find in verse 15 is a promise. It's a promise that there will be a seed one day that will come and crush the head of the serpent. God promised that one day, one of the woman's offspring would destroy the serpent. And this really is the very first announcement of the gospel. It's the first announcement of the good news that one day, the serpent will be destroyed. His power will be destroyed. And this is good news. And so the question comes, and, and really what we'll be exploring over the next weeks is, who is that serpent crusher? This is the first promise, but many promises will come throughout the Old Testament, all pointing to Christ. Let's move on to the, the words that um, the Lord has for the woman. To the man and the woman, we, we don't find a curse, but a description of sin's consequences and impact. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. What we first see is the call to fruitfulness that the Lord gave to the, the man and the woman to be fruitful and to multiply. It would now come with pain. There would be pain in childbearing. There's also an upsetting of the marriage and the marriage relationship. Right? You could say that she wants to be in control and maybe physically he's stronger than she is and so maybe he regularly beats her, doesn't care for her, doesn't treat her as he ought to. What we have now is the destruction of the marriage relationship itself because sin has entered the world. Every marital argument, every marital strife finds its root here. We sin because we're sinners. Right? We're, we're all born into sin, and it all comes from this very first sin. But there is hope. There is hope. But before we get to the hope, we need to see more consequences of the sin. What, what we see actually in the following chapters is the result of this sin being passed down generation to generation. Uh, First few of the following chapters of Genesis, we'll see the first homicide, brother killing brother, the first double murder, the first polygamy, eventually the first genocide, and on and on and on, all because at the very beginning, someone said, I will be God. I will choose what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. Every time you and I embrace our sin, that's what we're doing. We're following after our father Adam and our mother Eve. 
To Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. First Eve's fruitfulness in pain. And now the call to fruitfulness for Adam will come about because of pain. He was a gardener. That was his call in life. And now it would be a toilsome gardening. Right? So every, every sticker bush, right? every time you get poked by a thorn, you can thank Adam and Eve here, right? It's all over. The ground is cursed. Now we need plant geneticists, right, to, to make more fruitful plants because we're fighting against a curse. Then in verse 19, God explicitly speaks of the ultimate consequence of sin, and that's the consequence of death. God had promised death as the judgment of disobedience, and here it's confirmed. Verse 19 uh, the Lord said, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Whew. Merry Christmas. Happy Advent. Why are you preaching this text, Steve? What's going on? I want us to make the connection of why the babe in the manger is so precious. Why it's so precious. D.A. Carson talks about this verse. He says, of course there's death. It's not too surprising. If God is the creator and he gives life, then if you detach yourself from God, if you defy this God, what is there but death? He's the one who brought it all into being in the first place. He didn't bring it into being so that it might be completely autonomous from him. So if you walk away from him, what is there but death? If you pronounce your own good and evil and decide for yourself what is up and what is down, then you have detached yourself from God, the God who made you, and there is nothing but death. So is sin a big deal? Sin is a big deal. We say, well, what kind of death? Augustine helps us out here. He wrote that uh, if it be asked what kind of death God threatened them with, whether it's bodily or, or spiritual or the second death, that means hell, we answer, it is all. God comprehends all within, not just the first part or the second death. Whosoever the soul loses God, that is, we die spiritually, we, we hide from God, we become dead to God. We can't cut ourselves off from the God of the Bible without consequences. But God does not leave us there. There's the hope of the babe in the manger. And that's where we come to the third part of our section, where God provides a suitable covering. A suitable covering is provided. And so as we go into this last part of our text, we find hope. God would have been fully justified in killing Adam and Eve there on the spot. But in the next verse, verses, we see immense hope. What we see is it seems that Adam's response to the curses and the consequences of sin is actually a response of faith. It's a response of faith. Adam, what does he do? He, he names his wife. He names his wife Eve. Adam names his wife Eve, which sounds like the word, the giver of life. So what did, what did he do? He, he, he held on to the words of God 
as promises, promises that there would be an offspring, promise that life would continue. So verse 20 says, the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And then listen to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They had had fig leaves, right, that they had sewn together. Probably quite hurriedly, they'd sewn those together. We don't know that they had any needle and thread, so we have no idea how they held together, but they weren't sufficient. They still felt the need to hide. And so what we see next is that God provides a suitable covering for them. He doesn't chastise them in their shame. He doesn't say, you guys just need to, you guys just need to like, Admit that you're naked, it's okay, everything's fine, go back to normal. God knows that they need to be covered because they have so much shame to hide. And so he doesn't say, take off your stupid fig leaves, just go on, and we can live happily ever after. He meets them where they are. The reality is that there's no way to undo what has been done. So instead, he provides for them a covering of animal skin. It's a, it's a more durable cover, one that will last longer than, than simply leaves. But it comes at the price of an animal that sheds its blood and is slain. It seems that God is the one who, who shed that blood of the animal. And it was the first of a long trajectory of bloody sacrifices that reached all the way down to who? The coming of Jesus who was announced by the one who comes just before as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see there the promise of God to not leave us in our sin, but to hold out hope. Let's just read that. I just want to read the last verses here. In 22, the Lord God then said, Behold, the man has become like us in knowing good and evil. Now let us... Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. And we don't know what happens. God doesn't even finish his own sentence there. Instead, in verse 23, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What do we see in these verses? I think we see more hope. We see that, yes, God does admit that now Eve and Adam know good and evil, but not in the way that God knows good and evil. Right? The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they ate of it, what happened? Well, they knew good and evil, not, not the way that God did. God proclaimed what was good and what was evil. Now they had the experience of evil experience that we have ourselves, that which brings us shame. And so imagine, right, uh, I've heard an illustration of, of someone uh, going to the doctor and finding out that they have cancer. Well, who knows the most about the cancer? On one hand, the doctor has the most knowledge of the cancer. But the cancer victim, they know about cancer in a different way than the doctor does. That's the knowledge now that the, the man and the woman had. It's the knowledge that you and I have of good and evil. We know it from the inside. 
thanks be to God that he sent his son Jesus into our world to experience all that we have except for sin. The babe in the manger would grow up to be one who would experience all of life to be able to take our place, to be able to take our shame. The one who knew good and evil would experience the rest of what we experience in our lives so that he could take our place. We see that the, uh, the preciousness of Christ in coming into our fallen state. We also see in these verses protection from a fallen eternal state. Right? What does he do? By introducing uh, death into the equation, God doesn't leave us in our sinful state forever. By kicking, us out of the, by kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, what does he do? He distances us from himself to protect us from his holiness so that we in our sin are not destroyed by him. And just as God provided an angel to watch over and to care for the work that the man and the woman had failed to do, God sent Jesus into the world to accomplish the work that we couldn't do of living a sinless life and providing us a way back to God. See, in Advent, we prepare for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, but he's more than just a precious little baby in a manger. We celebrate the one in the manger because he's the promised one. We find out that he, he will do more than simply crush the head of the serpent. He's the Savior who pays the penalty for our sin. He clothes us in his righteousness. He removes our guilt and he removes our shame. The babe in the manger brings us reconciliation with God who, by faith, we can have life in him. He restores that relationship. Think back to Billy at the beginning, right? Uh, Billy had a, a whole hallway full of toothpaste. He had to be reconciled to his mother. Now, that is a made-up story. I mean, I heard a version of it another time, but uh, it's not a true story about me or my brother. But we can imagine how that, that relationship could be restored. But it took the coming of God's own son to make restoration for us so that we could have full restoration with God. The, the church father, uh, Irenaeus, uh, captured the parallel between Adam and Christ when he said these words. He said, just as sin came into the world, uh, just as sin came into the world uh, through sin occasioned by a tree, so sin came into the world by a tree, so Jesus overcame sin by his obedience on a tree, that is, obedience on the cross. I think being reminded of where sin came from and, and why we are born into sin ourselves remind us of just how precious the manger is. The one who we worship, the one who we adore, the one who we anticipate is the one who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ. I pray that you would help us as a church family uh, to move beyond any sentimentality about Christmas. 
and remind us that we have true and genuine, glorious hope in Jesus Christ. Remind us that even as we light each candle week by week, it's an anticipation, not simply of Christmas presents, but of the ultimate gift of you sending your son, Christ, into the world to accomplish what the first Adam couldn't and that he, as the second Adam, accomplished not simply for himself, but for all who believe in him. I pray that you would help us to rejoice in that reality, that you would help us to embrace that reality. And in doing so, that you would help us as a people to know that just as sin came into the world through one man, that we would trust and rejoice in the fact that Christ brought reconciliation for all who believe in him. Father, make this Christmas, make this Advent season more than simply the trappings of Christmas. But help it to be a renewal of our faith, a renewal of our joy, and a renewal of our hope in our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.